0: Good morning church, Pastor Rich here. Just wanted to let you know that uh, this Sunday we had a battery die in one of our audio interface units and therefore the beginning of the sermon where I read the scripture is missing. But we are in John chapter 2 verses 1 through 12 and this message picks up after I have already read the scripture. So read it for yourself and then listen to the message. Be blessed. Have a great day. All right, so, a minister, all right, is driving down to New York. And he is stopped by the police for speeding. Now, the police officer, after he pulls the minister over for speeding, he smells alcohol on the the minister's breath. All right, and he says, uh, and he sees an empty wine bottle on the floor of the car. And he says, sir, have you been drinking? And the minister is like, no, no, no. I, I, I was only drinking this bottle of water here. And the sheriff says, well, why do I smell wine? Why do I see a wine bottle? And the minister looks over at the wine bottle, rather shockingly. And he says, oh, man, Jesus did it again. Most people get the punchline before you even get to the end. We joke, there's a ton of jokes about Jesus turning water into wine. We make a lot of jokes about it, you know. Jesus turned water into wine, but Chuck Norris turned it into beer. You know, Jesus turned water into wine, but it was just one of those Cabernets. All these different jokes about Jesus turning water into wine. But in all seriousness, what I really want to say is that this passage has nothing to do with the morals of drinking. Absolutely zero. Okay? So we never want to use this passage to tell someone that it's okay to be a Christian and drink, or we shouldn't, or however they want to use it, because that's not what this passage is about. Right? It should never be taught that way. Here's a couple of things you should know if you didn't know already. Wine is a common drink, was a common drink, still is a common drink in the Middle East. Jesus drank wine, all right? If you have a hard time grasping that, wrap your head around it now. Jesus drank wine. However, wine was made differently then, right? And there are a few companies today that still produce wine, and they try to produce it within the same manufacturing process of how they made wine back then in biblical times. And what it has to do with is natural ingredients versus genetically modified ingredients. Okay, because the yeast they use today in most wines is genetically modified, and genetically modified yeast can get you an alcohol uh, content of anywhere from twelve to twenty percent in a bottle of wine. The alcohol content of wine at the time of Jesus was four to ten percent. Okay, so yes, there was alcohol, but it wasn't the same as wine. Today, there is a difference. Okay, so anyway, if you have a problem with the fact that Jesus drank wine and it had an alcoholic content to it, just convince yourself it was grape juice. Okay, maybe that'll help you because it probably tasted more like grape juice than wine does today. But it was wine. Now, Jesus turning the water into wine wasn't just some sort of party trick. Okay? It wasn't a parlor trick. He wasn't doing it so that everybody would be like, whoa, dude, this is awesome. We're going to have a great wedding feast. Look what Jesus did, right? Most people at the wedding feast had no idea that Jesus was even the Messiah and had no idea that Jesus even, you know, who he was or anything like that. Remember, it tells us right here in in, at the end, there of what we read in verse 11, this is the first of his signs, which means he hadn't done any signs. He hadn't done any miracles before this. Up to this point in Jesus' ministry, he hadn't done a squat. When he was a little kid, he wasn't forming birds out of clay and breathing on them with his breath and sending them off to fly in the air. He wasn't raising other children from the dead. He didn't do any of those things. This was his first sign. So they didn't know anything about him in that way right? It wasn't a party trick. He didn't do, do this for the amusement of the guests so that they could party the night away and have a great time for seven days because wedding feasts lasted for seven days, right? It's a sign. It's a miracle, right? A sign points to something. A sign declares something. In the Greek, it means that a sign is something that by which a person is set apart, right? And then, then is known, right? It's a supernatural indicator that points to who Jesus is, Right, The Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, God. That's what it was. That's what its purpose was. And like I said, it's the beginning of science. It says right there at the end that he was manifested in his glory because of this, and the disciples believed in him. It doesn't say anyone at the wedding feast. Why? Because they didn't know that he did it. Maybe the servants even believed in him because they're the ones who had to serve the wine. They know it. Right? But his disciples believed in him. So that was the purpose of this. So let's lay out the facts of what happened here. Right? First, we have the fact that Jesus and his disciples were invited to a wedding. Right Now, there's many people, I just want to say this off to start with. This is not the wedding of Jesus. <laughs> okay, this, that is taught. Right? Jesus was invited to this wedding. He was a guest. He was not the groom. And this is not the wedding of the Apostle John. Some people actually teach that this was the wedding of Apostle John. And when Jesus turned the water into wine, John left his wife at the altar and went and followed Jesus. It was like, oh, that would have been like a really downer wedding. It would have taken all that wine for some people to get over that. That's not what happened. That's not what this is. They were guests. They were invited to the wedding. It was not their wedding. The wedding was in Cana in Galilee. A little backwoods town, right? It's a small town. It's a poor town. It, it was not obviously in Jerusalem. It says that the wedding was on the third day, which we associate, of course, with the day of resurrection. But what it's saying is, is that it's the third day since Jesus talked to Nathanael at the end of chapter one. So John is keeping time for you. If you remember, as we went through chapter one, he said, the next day, and then the next day, and the day after that, and now on the third day. So this is the third day since Jesus met Nathanael. Mary's at the wedding. Matter of fact, it's probably Mary who invited Jesus to the wedding. Mary probably knew the people in the wedding, which was why she was there, because you get the impression from what's said that she was helping out at the wedding, Right? Maybe she was, you know, the design consultant or, you know, the assistant wedding coordinator. or She was helping out at the wedding and she invited Jesus and his disciples to come along. Jesus came to the wedding. Jesus and his disciples. Now, here's the thing. They kind of had to come, right? You don't refuse a wedding. If you get invited to a wedding in biblical times here within the Jewish culture, Right? You kind of had to go. If you refused the invitation, which was a huge no no, you don't do that, right? They would have thought you as good as dead, right? What? <laughs> you didn't come to my wedding? No Christmas card for you this year, right? I'm taking you off the list. But we're going to ignore you when we pass you in the street from now on. We're not even going to say hi to you. You didn't come to our wedding, so you kind of had to go, right? N- That ties in later with Jesus when he's talking the parable about the wedding feast. You can understand some of that. A wedding feast was seven days long and you could not leave the wedding feast early. So if you came to the wedding, you stayed and partied for seven days and then you left. You couldn't bring your work with you. You weren't trying in the corner somewhere trying to finish up your work while your wife was out there partying at the wedding or anything like that. No, you were there to enjoy the festivities and you were there to be there for seven days and you never left. You were required to have fun. If you didn't have fun, there was a problem with the wedding. And that reflected back on the people getting married. Right? Now, understand this. This is one of the first or the first, really, of many stories that suggest that Jesus was always welcome among those who were having a good time. Right? Hey, Jesus, we're having a wedding. Come along. Hey, Jesus, we're having dinner. You want to come join us? Right? It's an odd thing to think of maybe when you think about it, because you have to understand that Jesus achieved celebrity status, if we want to look at it that way. And when we think of celebrities today, like if you were to walk up to a celebrity you know of, like if you saw him on the street, right? And I'll just use an example I I saw this week, Bruce Springsteen, okay? Bruce Springsteen is like, he's just hanging out and some kid sees him on the street and says, hey, Bruce, we're going to go over here and watch a movie. You want to come with me and my girlfriend and go see E.T. or whatever it was? And he was like, sure, I'll do that. They're like what? <laughs> you, you what? And so Bruce went with them, and they they went and saw the movie together. And the kid was like, "Wow!" And afterwards, of course, you're going to be a little emboldened after that. Hey, you want to come over to my house? My mom's making you know spaghetti for dinner tonight. <laughs> okay. So Bruce went over to his house, had spaghetti with the whole family. When they went in there and having dinner, he's like, he's like, "Mom, I I brought a guest. Who is it? Bruce Springsteen. Who's that?" <laughs> He goes in, gets the album, comes back. This person, mom, what? (laughs) All right. (laughs) I better make more garlic bread. (laughs) You don't expect those type of things to happen. But yet Jesus was invited to all kinds of different events. Wherever they were doing something where they were going to have a good time, they invited Jesus along. Why? Right? Because, Because he didn't spoil a good time. Jesus didn't spoil a good time, really. When he was invited to things like this, he had a good time. This is a quote from Charles Spurgeon, and it says, a man void of congeniality is better fit to be an undertaker and should bury the dead because he will have no success among those who are alive. If heaven is within the heart and soul of a man, then it will be seen on his face. Jesus was alive. Jesus celebrated life, and marriage and weddings are God's idea. Jesus was invited to a wedding. Jesus shows up at a wedding. Now later, Jesus will be attacked for doing things just like this. Later, they'll say things like, oh, the Son of Man came eating and drinking and say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He sat down and he ate with these people. He's unclean. So later, he will be attacked for things like this. But it didn't stop him. Right? But that being said, at this time, the people at the wedding probably didn't know anything about Jesus other than what they knew from his mom. He kept me up late when he was a little kid all the time, when he was teething. Whatever facts that she passed on from Jesus' childhood, that's probably all they knew about him. They didn't know really anything else about him. Now, culturally speaking, there were many superstitions concerning the weddings at the time the bride and the groom looked at their wedding as an indicator of God's presence in their marriage and God's blessing on the marriage, okay? So if something bad happened during the wedding or during the wedding event, then all the guests at the wedding were going to look at what happened and they're, and they're going to come up with a conclusion on whether or not God was in the marriage or God was cursing the marriage, right? So the wedding had to be meticulously prepared and arranged. I mean, way more than probably what you did for your wedding definitely way more than what I did for my wedding, right? But it had to be meticulously planned and, I mean, down to everything. You had to know exactly how many guests were coming and what portion size was this and that, and you had the right food and you had the seating arrangements. I mean, you had everything done meticulously because this was a sign on whether or not God was blessing your marriage and how well it all turned out. Right? And, they, and, of course, because, again, the wedding feast was seven days long, they had to have adequate provisions so as not to run out of anything. Right? And oops, right? major faux pas, they just ran out of wine. We don't know where this is within the wedding. We don't know how many days it's been. We don't know if they ran out on the first day, which would have been terrible. Right? But they ran out of wine. It would have been disgraceful for the family. Right? This was a closely knit society, and it was something that would be forever remembered and maybe even haunt the newlyweds their entire life. Right? Wine was a symbol of joy. So running out of wine could be construed as no one was happy, and probably no one would have been happy. Right? I mean, so many, many different bad implications abound with the running out of wine. Now, here's the thing to think of if you hadn't thought about it. Jesus might be part of the problem about why they ran out of wine. Not because he was over there drinking it by the barrel. That wasn't the issue. It was because they meticulously planned these events down to the last person. And it's possible if Mary at the last second said, hey, Jesus, come to the wedding. I'm helping out out here. And bring your disciples with you. The extra six or seven people that showed up at the wedding threw everything off. There's always people who show up right, that aren't on the invite list that you didn't know about. You're not going to turn them away necessarily. You know them. They're friends of friends. You invite them in. They get there. But now you have to change everything. Oh, no. Do we have enough food to cover the extra guests? Do we have enough wine to cover the extra guests? I don't know, right? It's possible that could have put them over the limit. Who knows? They weren't a wealthy family. Don't think that this is a wealthy family. They were probably low income. It was more than likely a smaller wedding. We don't know. Hundreds and hundreds of people, I doubt it. A hundred people, maybe, right? There's a picture there. You know, Maybe it was a large event like that, right? That's not that many people, really. But regardless, Mary, understanding all the social uh, implications of what's happening when the wine runs out makes probably... Makes the best choice that she can make at this point, which is she went to Jesus. In times of difficulty, who do you turn to? You turn to Jesus. Mary goes to Jesus and she says, very straightforward, this is all she tells Jesus, they have no wine. That's all she says. Notice what she doesn't say. She doesn't say, do something about it, right? go find some, take care of it, perform a miracle, call wine down from heaven, right? Split a rock with a staff, maybe wine will come out, right? She doesn't, she doesn't give him any suggestions on what to do. She just says, they ran out of wine. Now look at Jesus' response to Mary. <laughs> Whenever I read it, I think it's kind of disrespectful. But it's, but it's not really disrespectful, right? Because he says, woman... Right? I, I dare someone to try this with their mom. Right? Or your wife or whatever. Woman. Right? What'd you just say? Right? Bash. Right? No. Right? Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Actually, in the Greek, this is a term of respect. It's not, it's not, he's not being disrespectful, believe it or not. Mary was not about to slap him. I don't think. Right? Literally what Jesus is saying here is, my lady, my dear. Right? The concern that you have, the problem that you have, is beyond you. That's really what he's telling her. This problem that just happened, this this, this is beyond you. And then he gently reproofs her, because that's what he's doing. Understand it. He says, my hour has not yet come. But he's not saying, I'm not going to do anything. Right? My hour has not yet come does not... It just means that Jesus is on a different timetable than us. God is on a different timetable than we are. We already know that God's timetable and our timetable are two completely different timetables, right? Jesus is on a different timetable than us, but this is not an excuse to get out of, any, out of anything. Jesus is not giving her an excuse not to do it. Jesus is not saying, oh, uh, no, uh, not right now, Mom. Nope, sorry. Not a good time. That's not what he's saying at all, right? He's just letting her know, My hour is really not come yet, right? And just for us also, just understand, Jesus didn't tell us to love our neighbors on Tuesdays between two and five, (laughs) right? There isn't a specific time in which we're supposed to do that, right? Love your neighbors after your morning coffee. It might be better if you do it that way. I'm just telling you, he didn't necessarily say that for you, right? Love your neighbors when it works out for, when you have time between your hectic schedule, if you can squeeze them in. He just said, love your neighbor. Right? And the thing you should notice here is that Jesus didn't ignore their request. He didn't pass it up. He didn't decline. Right? He had, mind you, he had zero obligations to perform a miracle. But as we know, he did it anyway. After Jesus tells her this, look at Mary's reply. She doesn't answer Jesus, <laughs> she doesn't speak back to him at all. She just looks at the servants and says, Do whatever he tells you. Right? It's very important for us to understand. Mary doesn't respond to Jesus. She doesn't instruct him on what to do or how to do it. She doesn't order him to do anything because he can't order Jesus around. He's not your personal genie. Okay? He's not in the bottle granting you three wishes. She doesn't order Jesus to do anything. But she helps Jesus. She helps Jesus along. She gives him an opportunity here. She's given him an opportunity to show a sign. Right? Right? Mary just points to Jesus and she says, do whatever he tells you. Or in other words, follow Jesus, right? Mary's words glorify Jesus. And by the way, these are her last recorded words in the Bible. Last recorded words of Mary are, do whatever he tells you. Follow Jesus, right? She had faith that he would take the appropriate action. And of course we know he did. Listen, it's a completely alien concept in the Bible to think that you have to go through Mary to get to Jesus. It's not biblical to pray to Mary or any saints, quote, unquote, when you have direct access to the throne. Okay, Hebrews 10, 19 and 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. We have confidence, standard enter the holy place ourselves. And we'll have to go through Mary or anybody. And what did Mary say anyway? She said, just do whatever he tells you. Right? So, remember that. So, Jesus. There's six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. Each of these stones held twenty to thirty gallons apiece. That's just you know, do the math, 120 to 180 gallons. Potentially. They were big pots, right? Jesus told the servants to fill them and they filled them to the brim. They just didn't fill them halfway or three quarters. They brought it right up to the top. Very obedient of the servants. Then he said, okay, now draw that water out that you just filled them with and take it to the master of the feast. Now you can imagine at this point, they're probably a little trepidatious. Right, their knees are probably knocking. They're probably sweat coming down in their face. They're like, "Excuse me, I don't really want to lose my job." Right, but they had faith because they did it. They took what they saw as water. They had, they themselves had just filled these stone water pots, and they took that water, and they took it to the master of the feast. I wonder how fast they were walking. <laughs> right? They took it to the master of the feast. Here, try this. I, you know, and he tries it. And he says, Hold on. Right? He probably stopped the ceremonies. I'm guessing. Right? He said, Hold on. Usually you serve the good wine first. And then once everybody's had enough, another way to put that is, once everybody's good and sloshed, right? Then you give them the really watered down stuff, the the cheap wine. Right? I don't drink anymore. But in my past, I can tell you, when you go to a bar and you're ordering rum and Cokes, when they, the first ones they serve are a lot more rum and less Coke. And the last ones they serve are way more Coke and less rum, right? They, they change the content as they serve your drink. That's what, that would have been the normal. So that's what he's saying. He's saying, man, the good wine is usually served first, the cheap wine last, but you guys have saved the best for last. This is amazing, right? When did the water turn into wine? There's a question for you. Was it still water in the barrels, in the stone jars? Did it turn into wine when they scooped it up to go serve it? Did it turn into wine once they poured it in the cup? Did it turn into wine once they sipped it? When did it turn into wine? I don't know. Think about it. Ponder that one just for yourselves. Doesn't matter. The point is, is that the master of the ceremonies drank it. And he said, this is the best wine I've tasted. You guys have saved the best for last. Now I want you to notice a couple of things about how Jesus did this miracle. Jesus used what was there, the water pots, the ceremonial purification pots that are used, right? He, and he used who was there, the servants to do the, the miracle. Right, the servants were willing and obedient and therefore shared in the blessing. They shared in the joy of the miracle. Between Jesus and the servants and Mary and maybe the disciples and the disciples, they're the only people who know that Jesus did anything. No one else at the wedding party had a clue. They just thought, "Wow. This is the best wine." No one else. We don't know how many people were there, it doesn't matter. They shared in the blessing, but they didn't know how the blessing happened. But the servants did because the servants were faithful and willing and obedient to do what Jesus said. So they shared in the joy of the miracle. Right? It says, for a day in your court is better than a thousand else, elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. It says in Psalm 84, this is an example of that. When we're serving God and we're a servant of God and we step out faithful in obedience to what he tells us to do, we get to share in the joy of that. The servants got to share in the joy of that. When Jesus said, fill it, they filled it to the brim. Jesus didn't say fill it to the brim. He just said, fill it. They filled it to the brim. They obeyed Jesus in faith. They just poured water in there. And then they had to take that water to the master of the feast and serve it like it was wine. Like I said, they're probably sweat pouring down their face. Knees were knocking. I don't want to lose my job. Master of the Feast says, this stuff rocks. Right? Listen, when Jesus makes wine, it's fantastic wine. Right? It must have been some party after that. Too bad it wasn't on video. Right? It was so good, right? It, it, had they known it was Jesus who performed the miracle, had the whole crowd been told, you won't believe what Jesus did. Uh, we were actually ran out of wine. Sorry, but Jesus went over and now we have we have 180 gallons of wine, right? Someone would have been like, and that's the best wine. It's the best you've ever tasted. Someone would have probably come up to Jesus and been like, hey, the wine's great, man. Can you knock out some fruit punch for the kids? But But they didn't know he did it. No one had any clue. They just thought that it was... They had held off and given them the great wine later. So what are we going to learn from this? Because this is an interesting story, and, and like I said, a lot of people try to re- put a lot of things into what it's saying here into what happened. But what does this mean for us? Because, like I said, it's not about whether or not you should drink or not drink or any of these things it's not talking about that. The Bible's excuse me, clear on those things. Maybe when you read about the wedding at Cana here, you think the end times, right? Because you have, you know, the marriage supper of the lamb in revelation. You have the parable Jesus taught about the wedding feast when he compares heaven to a wedding banquet, you know, and those are all good things to think of. And and those are things that from what we learn here about weddings that can, you know, the, the things that we learn here about weddings can help us better understand those passages and what Jesus is saying when he you know, compares like heaven to a wedding banquet or talks about the wedding, you know, banquet that we're going to have with Jesus after the rapture. We can get a better understanding of those things. But that's not what, this isn't an end times picture. Matter of fact, Jesus isn't teaching a thing here. And you understand that he doesn't, a lot of times when Jesus does a miracle or when Jesus performs a miracle, sometimes he will then teach something or give him a parable which kind of teaches about what he's doing or gives them an illustration about what they're supposed to learn from this or things like that. He doesn't teach a thing. Jesus technically went from a guest at the wedding to the master of ceremonies, I mean, behind the scenes in a sense, Yet he doesn't give a speech. He's not talking. He didn't get up and say, okay, now that I've turned the water into wine, this is what I want you to learn from it. Everyone, listen up. Those with ears, let them hear. Those with eyes, let them see. He doesn't get up and say a thing. Like I said, they have no clue that he did this. Nothing, right? So what are we to learn from this? Well, obviously there's something we can learn from this. Here's one thing. When God's at work, Jesus will be there. And through Jesus, not only will all our needs be met, but through Jesus, God desires to bless his creation. It says that because Jesus so loved the world, that, he, that God so loved the world that he sent Jesus. Why did Jesus perform this miracle? It wasn't out of obligation. It was out of love. Jesus loved his mom and his mom said, they have no wine. It's possible that Jesus knew the couple getting married. If these were friends of the family, Jesus would have known them. Or maybe he knew of them through his mom. So therefore Jesus loved them. Jesus understood that if the wine actually ran out, the implications of that upon the married couple and the family and the shame and stuff that would come upon them because of that, he understood all of that and he didn't want them to go through that. And because of his great love for them, under no other obligation, he didn't do this because his mom twisted his arm. He did it because he loved them. And he wasn't trying to draw any attention to himself because it wasn't his wedding. This wasn't about him in that sense. It was about them. It was about him because it was his first miracle. And because of this, it says his disciples believed. So it did speak to those who were paying attention and understood what Jesus did. But for those who had no clue what Jesus did, it was just a blessing upon their lives. Right? They just avoided a major problem, and it was God, Jesus, who helped them get around that issue, and they had no clue that he did it. You wonder how God works in people's lives sometimes. We, who are in Christ, can look at how God's working in people's lives and say, man, like, wow, God just got you through that. And they're like, what are you talking about? Right? I don't, what are you talking about? God got me. Yeah, because we can see what's happening. But they do not see it at all, but yet they benefited from it. Jesus did this because of his great love for them. Jesus did this because when God is at work, Jesus is going to be there. And guess what? Jesus was be there. It was there. And when Jesus wants to bless us, he does it over and the abundantly over what we are going to expect that he's going to do, right? Above and beyond. He doesn't just give us the bare necessities. Oh, you're hungry? Here's a cracker, right? He dropped manna from heaven to the Israelites to the point that they were complaining. They had so much and it was getting moldy because they weren't using it, you know, eating it. They had so much stuff. He doesn't just give the bare necessities. It goes above and beyond, right? It says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. When Jesus pours out his blessings onto us, it overflows. Guess what? It was overflowing at the wedding, right? Because because one gallon equals five bottles of wine. I did the math, okay? One gallon equals five bottles of wine. There is potentially 900 bottles of wine that came from Jesus turning the water into wine, assuming they used all 120 to 180 gallons that they had. And depending on what you think is the average consumption of wine per person at a Jewish wedding during the time of Jesus, that could be anywhere from 4,500 to 6,000 servings of wine. Were there that many people there? No, probably not. It was over and above what they expected. Had they known, if they even knew, that all of these jars were, could be potentially wine? How much did they use during that seven-day? Who knows? doesn't matter. That's not the point of the story, really. But it was over and above. It was, more, it was abundantly more than what they needed, right? Ephesians 3.20, now to him who was able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. That's Jesus. There's abundantly more. And that's what he did at this wedding. A simple little wedding in Cana, right? In Galilee, he comes in. Hey, they ran out of wine. I'll take care of that. 180 gallons (laughs) of wine, right? I I really can't fathom that, but still. Now, one more thing. This is really more for you, for your application. God wants you. Filled to the brim, but not with wine, all right? With the Holy Spirit, right? Ephesians 5, 18, and do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the spirit, right? Taste and see that God is good, yes. He wants to fill us to the brim so that we can be poured out to the world around us, right? What did Paul write? He wrote, Paul wrote this more than once. He said, you know, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, right? If I'm going to be poured out as an offering, Paul talks about all, that all the time. God wants you filled to the brim with the Holy Spirit so that you can be poured out to the world around you. Jesus poured himself out for us. And that's the example that we follow. It tells us in Titus, it says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Jesus was poured out for us. And through that, we've received the Holy Spirit. That's how Jesus works in our lives. He uses, just like what we saw here in the wedding He uses what is around us and who is around us, what's already there, to manifest His glory to us so that our faith in Him will be strengthened, so that we will believe. We don't need to tell Him what to do or how to do it. He knows what's best for us, and He knows how to give it to us. Listen, if Jesus can take a common water pot and change the contents He can take you, right, as old and scratched and beat up as you are, as I am, and dispense new life from you as well. Listen, Moses turned water into blood. Jesus turned water into wine. As I said, wine is a picture of joy biblically speaking. What you see there between the two is that you see this picture of the law, right? Versus purification. You see the picture, you know, as compared to new life and and Jesus, you see judgment versus grace. You see condemnation versus joy. The Israelites, they grumbled and complained when God provided what they needed when they were in the desert. They need, you're hungry. Here's food. You're thirsty, here's water. It was, it was what they needed. It was necessities. It was above and beyond what they needed. It was what they needed. And they're like, can we just go back to Egypt? Grumble, grumble, complain, complain. Let's not be complainers when God's pl- pouring his blessings out on us. And understand that he's filling us to the brim so that we can pour our, those blessings out on others. Everything that God has given you is so that you can share it with others. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Christ Jesus. That's what he's given you. Because Jesus, just like here at the wedding, has saved the best for last. The miracle at the wedding of Cana reminds us of this. It's real simple. Our need... To invite Jesus into our homes, into our churches, to be present in the entirety of our life. It's not just, hey, Jesus, I'm going to church. Coming with me? I'm already there, he says. Hey, Jesus, I'm going to hang out with my buddies. Are you coming with me? Yeah. Hey, Jesus, I'm going to the ball game. You coming with me? Yeah. Hey, Jesus, I'm running to Costco. You coming with me? Yeah. Jesus, I need to go mow the lawn. You come with me? No, 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 not doing that. No, he says, yes, right? We think he only wants to be in certain areas. We only put him in certain areas. He's with me when I do my quiet time. He's with me when I come to church. He's with me when I'm praying. He's actually with you in everything that you're doing. He wants to be part of every part of your life. He says, invite me in to everywhere, to the entirety of, of your life, so that you then can live a life empowered, empowered by the new and better wine, right? The wine of joy, the wine of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. That's what he wants. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this, and I thank you for your word, and I pray, Lord, that we do just that, that we understand that you want to be invited into all of our life, not just parts of our life, but all of our life, and that in that, Lord, in all the work that God's doing within our lives, not only are you present in everything, but through that, that you, that you bless us, and you provide for us, and you take care of us, and you fill us, Lord, you fill us to the brim, and from that, Lord, we can be poured out into the lives of those around us. For your sake, Lord, just as you poured yourself out for us so that we can live this life of freedom, that we can live this life of joy, that we can live a life in you, set free from the bondage of sin, Lord. You want us to pour our lives out too. And we often think we don't have enough. But you are here to tell us you have more than enough because I am with you, he says. So I pray, Lord, that we just continue to pour ourselves out. We just continue to point others to Christ and say, do what he says. And we thank you for this, Lord. We thank you for your words. We pray that you just continue to stir them in our lives and draw us closer to you. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.